like any nerdy pastor would, I would suggest, one of my main decoration themes for Christmas is my collection of nativity sets. So Deb, who's beautiful Lake Home we're at right now, she also is with me in the nerdy, nerdy times where we just love to decorate with mostly nativity sets. I've seen her collection and now I am looking at her collection and thinking hashtag goals for my life because she's got an awesome collection of nativity sets. And it turns out I have been drawn to nativity sets since I was a little kid. I have some of my collection so far that are from all over the world, uh, in, including this set right here that me and my husband got when we went to Uganda just a year ago, a little over a year ago. And it's just beautiful. Um, it made it home in one piece. And then this nativity set right here is actually the, the nativity set that my family has had since I was a little girl. Like this is this, my mom says that she bought it the, for my first Christmas, probably in Germany. We were living in Holland. And so actually I've got a little picture that you can check out. Uh, we were living in Holland and I think my parents went over to the big German markets and bought this. You can see the, the, the differences in these two. And um, I think this one has been through, you can tell it's been through 37 Christmases, including the fact that this guy got into it with a dog and didn't quite, this shepherd didn't quite get, didn't quite make it through. And my mom would take uh, little baby Jesus. He comes out of his manger actually here. And she would hide baby Jesus all the way through Advent. And then when we got to Christmas day, Christmas morning, oh, the Jesus would be in the manger. It was so amazing. And I just loved it when I was a kid. And then we would get an angel food cake and we'd all gather around with candles and we would sing happy birthday to baby Jesus. <laughs> okay, this was, this was what it was about. Just like Rose Amoda sang last week. <laughs> she sang happy birthday to baby Jesus. Uh, my mom was just, she had Advent down. She was amazing at helping us celebrate which, what's arguably one of the most important things that's ever happened in human history, that God decided to become a human. It's absolutely worth celebrating the birthday of the King of Kings. But what I hope that we can take away this year as we are here in this conversation, living in hope, and we're looking at the book of Revelation, here's what I hope that we can take with us. That there's actually not just one Advent. There's actually not two Advents. There's actually three Advents. What does Advent mean? It means arrival. There's not just one. There's not just two. There's three. Scholars often say that there's three Advents or three arrivals. First, the first coming of Jesus incarnate, the nativity set, right? Jesus came as this little baby. The second, the spirit of Jesus coming in our midst now. That is the second arrival. We talk about that a lot, right? Looking around to see what God is doing around us. Every day, God is leading us to join in what God's work is in the world. That's the second advent. And then the third advent is Jesus' return, which we have this glimpse of in the book of Revelation, which is why it's so appropriate for us to be talking about that. So in church history, Celebrating Christmas through Advent has often been about these three Advents, all three of them, even though we tend to focus on the first. And the important thing about all three of them is that all three of them help us live in hope. I want you to remember these three Advents. I, I want them to be just sealed in your mind as we talk about this today and as we go through the rest of, of our Advent conversation. So while it might seem a little odd for us to be talking about the end of the New Testament, when we typically are talking from the, new, the very beginning of the New Testament during Advent and during the Christmas season, it's actually very appropriate for us to be talking about the future Advent because in so many ways, that's what Advent is all about, being people of Advent that are looking forward to the final arrival of Jesus, but also looking around for what Jesus' spirit is doing now. So to help us do this, here we are 30 years after, 30 some years after, uh, 
I am ready to add some characters to my mom's nativity scene. When I was a kid, my mom said that I wasn't satisfied with what we have here. She said that I would go and I would find my Barbies and my G.I. Joes and my Legos and my trolls. Remember trolls? Do people remember those? Now, they were, they were cooler in a different time back in the 80s. This new version with the movie is low-key creepy if you ask me. But they all came because I thought everyone should celebrate the birth of baby Jesus. So now while we don't have any of my toys from growing up, I do think there's some new characters to add to this scene, just like six or seven-year-old Seth did. Because if we're gonna talk about how relevant Revelation is during this Christmas season, we should add some of the characters from the future Advent to our scene, right? So if some of you have been doing your uh, reading all the way through Revelation, you might see that during this Advent number three, the future vision that God gave John that's written in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of great characters. So there is actually a lamb that we'll talk about today. There's already a lamb here, two actually. But there's also a lion. All right, here we go. Jesus is described as a lion as well. It's also a description of Jesus riding in on a white horse. Look at that. Add him right in front of the guy who's got his face chewed. And there's a dragon. Some of the kids are like, a dragon in the Bible. There is. Now, the one I could find has three heads, but in the Bible it has seven. Number of completion. Remember that, kids. All right, so here we go. Now, I think this is a little weird, okay? I admit that it's a little weird that I'm adding all these creatures to the, this little scene with baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. But there's a very specific reason, even though it's a little bit silly, and that is that I want you to remember that every Christmas, from now on, every nativity set that you see, I want it to just be locked into your mind. That, of course, we're not waiting for baby Jesus to be born again. He's already been born. We're people waiting for the King Jesus to come back and remake this world, make all the wrong things right. That's what this Christmas season can help us look forward to. So I want you to remember, I want you to remember when we sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or earlier when we sang these words, the world waits for a miracle, for a little bit of hope, come, come, Emmanuel, or God with us. What we're saying is not come in the past, but come now in our midst so we can join your work in the world. And Jesus, we look forward to when you come again in this future hope where you make all the wrong things right. We long for Jesus' return. That is our hope. But we also live in the hope that the spirit of Jesus is with us now, coming in our midst. So throughout this book of Revelation, we see this theme of, Je of Jesus as the one who was, who is, and is to come. Who came to earth, right? The three advents, who came to earth, whose spirit is with us now, and who will return. And today we're going to look at a vision of this heavenly throne room in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. Dr. Don Jun's sermon last week was brilliant. If you haven't listened to it, I want you to go watch it. And if you did watch it, I want you to watch it again. That's how important it is. He really helped us to understand how even though this book has felt really daunting to a lot of us, I'm going to admit it's felt like that to me. When we read it, we're trying to understand it, and it's difficult. But he said that it was written to the original audience to reveal, not to conceal. But it doesn't always seem clear to us, and, and it makes sense because it's written in a genre of literature that we're not very familiar with called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic, there's a word that we often just don't really understand. We usually use it to mean something about the end of the world. That's not what it means. It simply means a revelation or a unveiling, a revelation that is intended to clarify, not to confuse, 
to explain something using symbolism. But that's not a typical type of literature that we might find today. And so John showed us how last week when he was talking, he was talking about how the symbolism would have made a lot more sense to people in the first century, right? When they were this original audience. Because people would have a deep connection to the images that we probably don't feel that connected to, which is why it can be confusing to us. And so this vision was given to John, the disciple, and written into this letter for this purpose of encouraging these first century Christians about the things that were happening right around them. Not, not only about the future. We know this book has some visions of the future, but it's not only about that. The, the vision is also about the things that they were going through right then. It was about how they needed to be offered hope because they were experiencing oppression. And it was critiquing the Roman Empire who was responsible for the oppression. And then, yes, the book gives a glimpse of this future coming of Jesus when Jesus comes and brings the new heaven and the new earth. That is a part of it. So the book of Revelation is actually about Advent number two and Advent number three. Advent number two, that God's coming right now and cares about the current circumstances that the people are going through, just like God cares about our current circumstances now. That's what these first century hearers would have heard and felt. But the book of Revelation is also about Advent number three, when Jesus returns, riding on the white horse, in ultimate victory. So in Revelation 4, there's this picture of the throne room, and in the throne room there is this, these 24 elders and then these symbolic, really intense creatures that look like different animals, kind of, but they've got eyeballs all over their bodies, okay? Ooh, creatures, okay. Well, wouldn't we just know that I have some creatures to add then to our Advent, our uh, Advent nativity here. Creatures with googly eyes all over their bodies. How about that? People think I'm doing this for the kids, but you know I'm doing it for you. Come on, you want to see. Look at these little creatures. And so these are, are these symbolic creatures, and we could talk for a long time about why they're used for symbolism, but why do they have eyes all over their bodies? Well, a lot of scholars would say it's to show that that's how many eyeballs you would need to take in the glory of God. And the text says in Revelation 4.8 that they, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was who is, and who is to come. Jesus, who was, who is, and who is to come. There it is, that picture of the three advents. So living in hope means that we look back to see what God has done. Living in hope means we look around now to see that we're not alone, that God cares about our circumstances, and God is moving around us no matter what we're facing. And living in hope means that we're looking forward to this future hope when Jesus will return. Something that I know I have to remind myself and, and others often is the fact that longing is what hope feels like on a hard day. Or maybe longing is what hope feels like during a hard year. And sometimes we want hope to be something that only feels positive, but the reality is hope and longing, they come hand in hand. And I know I have felt a lot of longing this year. So let's look just a little closer at this vision in Revelation 4 and 5 together. Remember, it's a symbolic vision of this throne room of God, and I want you to watch this two-minute video from the Bible Project just to give us a glimpse of what this, this image is all about. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. 
In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Like they said in the video, the lamb has divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. That's why the lamb can open the scroll. What's the big deal about this scroll? Why would it need to be opened? Well, the scroll contains how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. The scroll is about amazing advent number three when Jesus returns to restore all things. And wax seals would be used on a scroll in first century times. Sometimes there would be six, seven seals like there is in this picture. And the wax seals would be very common on a first century Roman legal document to make sure that what's inside the document has not been altered. And so a very common use for a scroll like this or a document like this would be someone's will and testament. And it can't be opened until that person has died. And then the scroll, the document, would be open and it wouldn't be valid until then and breaking the seal sets it in motion. So here's the lamb that was slain. The one that died is the only one that can open this, this symbolic scroll and open these seals. Jesus died his death and then came back to life through his resurrection and he inaugurated the kingdom of God and the seals are broken and the restoration project is set in motion. This is what's happening. This is what this picture means. Why is Jesus the only worthy leader to open the scroll and to set the amazing plan in motion? Because there is no leader like him, no leader that's ever been or ever will be. Jesus is the lion, but also the lamb, the most powerful, but also the most gentle. Just, just think about how powerful that seeming paradox truly is. The lamb willing to give his life even for his enemies. The vision ends with the, the lamb being worshipped for being so worthy of praise and the lamb taking the scroll. I'm going to read it to you, actually. What I want you to do is, actually, it's, it's Revelation 5, 7 through 12, but what I'd love for you to do is just to close your eyes and to imagine the scene before you the best that you can with our, our human minds. Uh, Revelation 5, 7 through 12, this picture of the lamb taking the scroll. He went, the lamb, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus has been on the throne. Jesus is on the throne now. And Jesus will be on the throne forever. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. Last week, John said something that really struck me. I want to repeat what he said when he was giving his sermon. He said, Revelation is relevant to us today because it challenges us. Culture tells us that we are the master of our own lives, that we are seated on the throne of our lives with our smartphones at our right hand. Revelation disrupts this sentiment. And 2020 has disrupted this sentiment as well. And I just thought that was so powerful and so worth thinking deeply about. As hard as this disruptive year has been for so many people, perhaps it's a time when we can take a look at what we put on the throne in our lives. Maybe this is a unique chance because everything has been all disrupted to, to honor Jesus and to say this is the lamb, the only one who is worthy to be on that throne. So let's ask that question together. What has found its way to the throne of our lives? What has become some of the most important things, maybe even the the, the worshipped aspects of life that are not God? Security, finances, wanting to be in control of situations. Maybe it's other people or relationships, some other desires that we have, or maybe there's something else for you. And you know what? I... I think this makes sense, actually. It makes sense that it would happen, that, that things would find their way to that, to that place in our life. Because when you look at the story of God, it shows that people who are weary of waiting often find other substitutes for God. They put other things on the throne. God's people did that. Uh, the Israelites did that with idols. God's people wanted often to have a substitute human leader. And I think today, putting ourselves on the throne is often our go-to. We are weary of waiting. Of course we are, especially in a year like this. But this Christmas, after this disrupting year, will we turn to Jesus and truly let him be on the throne of our lives? The lion, the lamb, the little baby king. To let Jesus be on the throne of our lives, these three advents can help us do three things that help put Jesus on the throne. They help us look back and see what God has done. Advent number two helps us look around and see that God is with you, even in the disruption. And help us then, Advent number three, to look forward, looking to Jesus' return, where the waiting will finally be over. And the restoration plan that's described in that scroll that came through the throne room, that restoration plan will be complete. Jesus has come, is coming, and will come again. The one who was who is, and who is to come. So I want to invite you this week just to take some time with these questions. Look back. Where do you see Jesus' faithfulness in your life? Look around. 
Where is Jesus' spirit moving in your midst now? Maybe even in some of the darkest, most difficult places in your life. And look forward. What would it look like to consistently remember our future hope of Jesus' return? To be comfortable with that longing because it's always going to be there until all those wrong things are made right. When Jesus is on the throne in our lives, our hearts will be more and more drawn to what his spirit is doing right around us. And our longing for that future hope will not be in vain. Let's pray. King Jesus, in this difficult year, when it seems like brokenness is around every single corner, we want you to be on the throne in our lives. You are the only one who is worthy. Forgive us for how we have put so many other things in your place. As we experience this darkness and this pain in this world, may your light break in. Jesus, may you give us eyes to see your second advent, to see that you are breaking in our everyday life. Your kingdom is coming all around us. Open up our eyes to see it. And we pray, Jesus, that we would experience your love, bringing us hope for today, but also hope for this future return. We long for you to make the wrong things right. And we want to join in what you're doing now as we await what it looks like for you to complete this restoration project in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray.